The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. And uh, of course, this is John McAndrew, your guest host. And today's guest is Asfar Malik. Dr. Malik is the Chief Executive Officer of Centerpoint Hospital, which is in the St. Louis, Missouri area. We'll talk more about that later. He's a, the doctor's a board certified in psychiatry and neurology with secondary certifications in both addictive and geriatric psychiatry. Uh, he has his own private group, Psych Care Consultants, and I know he works at several hospitals in the St. Louis area. Uh, Dr. Malik, I want to welcome you to the show, and uh, we'll try this again. I know the last time we had you on, there was a problem with Mother Nature and took the power out at the radio station, so we were not able to go on. So I want to welcome you, and thank you for coming back today. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. Dr. Malik, there's a couple questions I want to start, and we're going to talk about uh, Centerpoint Hospital, which you started uh, and opened in 2003. But here's a question. Uh, in the St. Louis area, uh, do you think, did you think at that time when you opened the hospital that there was a great need? Was mental health a big issue in St. Louis? What were the motivating factors for you? I know you got a group of a bunch of physicians together, and you actually bought the hospital and started to uh, to do integrated dual diagnosis there in 2003, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. what motivated you, though? What are the... Well, there, there are two things that motivated us. Uh, the most important was we saw that patients were being treated, and still are actually, around the country, where they were treated in silos. They were treated in a hospital, then they would be treated somewhere in outpatient setting somewhere. And a lot of people who would, could not follow up or could not get connected or messages or information were not passed through were falling between the cracks. And these are chronic illnesses. We certainly need to keep patients uh, stable. Uh, so uh, as a result, uh, what clinically made sense would be to have a inpatient and outpatient facility and physicians and therapists and counselors all under one umbrella so we can continue with the patients and make sure we keep them well. That was the whole impetus. So that's what led us when we got and had an opportunity to do something of this sort where we could buy a hospital and create a full spectrum of behavioral health. The other problem in behavioral health in St. Louis market was a group would treat um, addiction someplace else and somebody would treat 
and there's a psychiatric disorder somewhere else, and children and adolescents were treated somewhere else. So it was all a fragmented way of taking care of patients. We thought it's important, and if you look at it clinically, it's important to take care of patients because not a patient just does not have sometimes one illness. It's more like saying you treat your hypertension somewhere else and your diabetes somewhere else, right? Sometimes right. You, both these diseases may exist in the same patient at the same time. So uh, behavioral health, psychiatry, and addictions go hand in hand quite a lot. And this is a known fact in uh, science, but now as we are recognizing it more, it's becoming clear that there's a comorbidity. Comorbidity means simultaneously these conditions exist between right. substance use problems and other psychiatric disorders. In and the integrated, the integrated dual di- uh, disorder treatment, IDDT, evidence-based practices that were so, developed by Dartmouth some time ago, I mean, say exactly that, that you treat both illnesses simultaneously in the same facility. And why is that so important, just that simple fact, which is what you did when you started this hospital. But what are, why is that so important to treat them both in the same place? It's, it's simple. because Not only in the same place, but you're treated simultaneously because of two reasons. One of them, you have to train the staff to recognize it, and you have to treat them differently. If you treat one or the other, uh, you are really not helping the patient as a whole. There's a whole body treatment. In fact, this is becoming an international phenomenon. In fact, recently, uh, there were six studies where participating in the International Consortium of Psychiatric uh, uh-huh. Disorders, and they found a strong association between mood disorder and anxiety disorder as well as uh, substance use disorder. Uh, it also suggested that the continuum of this uh, of this magnitude of comorbidity uh, could be a function of the spectrum of mood disorders as then the direct relationship with the other illness. So, in essence, what I'm saying in in a lot of convoluted words is yeah. that if you have one, and if I don't treat, if I treat your alcoholism or your drug addiction, and you have underlying problems, whatever you you have, your incidence of relapse tend to go be very high. And that's what we saw in the older model. When substance use was treated separately as an entity on its own, the relapse was, rate was significantly higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you studied, doctor, I'll go back a little bit. You studied uh, at the University of Health Sciences in, in Pakistan. Yes, I did. And then came to America. What, what drove you, what brought you to become a doctor? I know it's... Uh, it's not an easy decision because it consumes many years of your life just to prepare. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's true. Uh, well, you know, that, that's, um, I would say, a little uh, tough question because uh, what makes you do what you do in life kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm. my, uh, my the issue with, with me was all my family, my, in my family, even my grandfather was a physician. So you were expected to be, <laughs> yeah. in a way you were expected to be kind of somewhat uh, in, in the field of health sciences in order to, it's a, I think it's one of the things we, what, what made me become a physician is I saw my multiple family members who are my uncle and aunts who are physicians and, and the kind of thing they did and the kind of uh, advancement that were happening in this field certainly led to the desire 
to do what you want to do. And your your certifications then in addictive and geriatric psychiatry, uh, why did you decide to, to go that direction? Um, I, I, the reason, uh, first I wanted to do psychiatry because I thought it played a very important role overall in, in, uh, in healthcare, more so than it was recognized. I remember I, I, when I did my residency, it was in uh, 1982-86. And in those days, psychiatry was not as popular as it is today, and I'm happy that it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, I certainly think it played a very important role in psycholo- your psychology and how you think and what you do, and the stresses in life lead to many medical problems as such, and that is one of the fascinating things I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the uh, on the on the same on the same side, what's more important is why did addiction and geriatrics is uh, and geriatrics uh, is is a new area, the brain uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, which is very new, and we still don't understand a lot. Anything that you don't understand, you have a quest to understand and learn about it. Mm-hmm. That led to me, and same thing is true for addictions. We had very little data what happened in the brain exactly when people are addicted, what leads to addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is one person genetically predisposed, other is not? Right. Uh, and we still don't know some of the answers, but I still think it's a very fascinating area of, of science where uh, we need to understand uh, and uh, more of about our brain than anything else. So you came, you came to St. Louis, uh, St. Louis University School of Medicine at Washington University. Um, when was it in your, this must have been quite some time ago, that you saw in the St. Louis area this incredible need um, for, you know, people with mental illness needed help, and you saw that it was a big issue in that area. When did that happen? Well, it, it, this is something that you experience on a daily basis, but it gradually you became aware. Actually, the honest truth is it's all over the country. I mean, I happen to be in St. Louis, and I love the city. I've been here longest. This is the place I've been longest ever in anywhere in my life. So it it became part of you. But this need is is uh, is the, all over the country. You see people with mental illnesses, and you see it in the news news media everywhere else, how people with severe mental disorders uh, do do things that, that affect the society on the whole. Yeah, yeah. And uh, at every level, if you look at individuals, uh, people are affected by emotional and mental disorders that lead to, in fact, a very interesting study shows that uh, 60% of divorces in our country have occur. And when patients are either depressed, have some mood disorder, or are on, are addicted to something, right? So sixty percent. I mean, that's a big number, and that's yeah. the fabric of the society that affects us. And then you combine that with the the other statistic you just gave me a little while ago, that when there's one, there is almost always the other co-occurring mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. So it's re- it's really. Uh, we had your partner, uh, Dr. David Olms, on a, a month or so ago, and um, he really talked specifically about the addiction piece, uh, you know, more than anything. And his his paper on the the disease concept of alcoholism, 
And when we come back, we'll take a break here in about a minute or so. I, I want to ask you how, when you decided to come up with this idea <laughs> to get some physicians together, and I don't know how many times this has happened in the United States. You might be able to tell us that. But you got a group of physicians together to actually buy this hospital and start to treat people in this more uh, integrated style with dual diagnosis. And this was in 2003. Is that when the hospital opened, or when did the idea hit you? The, I, the idea was, you know, you ponder about ideas, and you have meetings, yeah. and you discuss it. It really uh, happened to be that in 2003, we had an opportunity we could implement the thought and the idea we had into reality. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with Dr. Asfor Malik, and he is the chief executive officer of Centerpoint Hospital, and we're talking about dual diagnosis and psychiatry, and we've discussed the, the great need in all of this country, but particularly in St. Louis where he lives, for integrated care for mental illness and substance abuse. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about how we started Centerpoint Hospital and how they began to... Uh, to build this very effective community of healthcare. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. How many times have you heard this? I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. You are what you eat. I've tried every diet. Diets don't work. It's time to stop this kind of madness and start thinking and feeling empowered to change your health. Tune in to The Raw Truth with Chef Sharon Fraser. Join us weekly for thought-provoking conversations with world-renowned experts in the food, medical, holistic, sports medicine, chiropractic, and naturopathic health sciences. The Raw Truth airs live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We've been talking with Dr. Malik from uh, 
from Centerpoint Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, he is the chief executive officer. And, and uh, at break, we were starting to talk about how in 2003 uh, we talked about the motivations for starting this new hospital, which, which treats dual diagnosis uh, in the same facility, uh, treats them integrated. So um, I understand that when you started the hospital, you got these physicians together, and I imagine there were many, many meetings, and you opened your doors, and did you fill up right away, and was, it, was everything smooth in the beginning? No, not really. I mean, how, how, <laughs> how it happened to be, is it used to be a child psychiatry hospital. And uh, when we took over, we, we certainly think the need was to have a whole continuum of care. Uh, so we were then uh, kind of, we decided to develop some outpatient programs. And we did, did we develop some outpatient programs and we followed up with some adult programming. We went into, and so slowly we got into with physicians who were more specialized in certain areas, like Dr. David Ohms, for example, or mm-hmm. other physicians who who love who were passionate for doing geriatrics and older adults and things like those. So we 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 got the right key key physicians, got them in, developed those new programs which were which they had passion for, and we think we create a center of excellence for those areas as such. And, and you treat. You treat adults and adolescents, um, inpatient and outpatient. What other specifics can you tell us about? Okay, so Centerpoint presently is a 150-bed hospital, (laughs) which has inpatient for adults, geriatrics, and younger population, child adolescents. We also have residential treatment programs for uh, two group of people. One is people with addiction. And the other is a group of people who are uh, adults or adolescents who have uh, depressive symptoms where they tend to cut on themselves, known as self-cutters, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a small, which is a national program, actually, one of its kind in the United States. So people come in from all over the country to, those prog- to, to that program. It's a residential program. Okay. Then we have outpatient programs. In outpatient program, we have outpatient programs for... Uh, people with addiction, with dual diagnosis, with psychiatric illnesses, and also for child adolescents as well. And we have a program for for geriatric population as well. So we have outpatient for all segments of uh, of patients. Then along with that, in the continuum, we have what we call outpatient offices, where we have psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, uh, family therapists, all available to follow up on these cases. Not everybody needs to be hospitalized. So we treat right. a lot more patients in an outpatient setting than what we do in a hospital. Right. But more importantly is the fact that we have a continuity of care and we have one point shop for any problem you have, uh, we are able to take, we have a specialized qualified people who can take care of those things. And your offices are all over uh, Missouri, is that right? And Correct. Actually, recently, uh, we have offices not only in Missouri, but across the river in Illinois as well. But we also have offices in Columbia, Missouri, which is mid- Midway, and the outpatient program over there. Dr. King is the medical director over there. And then now recently, 
about a year ago, we opened some outpatient program in offices uh, with similar similar vision in Kansas City, Missouri as well. And we have now a 24-bed hospital over there which provides an extension of center point in Kansas City. Right. So, Doctor, let's talk, because this is really what you know a lot about, um, you know, the science of addiction, the science of brain disease, uh, mental illness, the um, diagnosing these as, as you said, co-occurring disorders, and then the decisions that have to be made between using, you know, cognitive therapy uh, and using medicine, uh, particularly, you know, for the mental illness mm-hmm, part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where are we at now? Because the science of addiction, we're just learning so much more now, being able to look at the brain closer, aren't we, with the, with the imaging that's been available the last 10 or 12 years. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. So first thing, first, uh, let's go back a little bit. Okay. Addiction is certainly considered as a brain disease now. For two reasons. One is because the drugs can then change in the structure and function of the brain. Mm-hmm. It's true that most people, the initial, initial decision to take drug is voluntary. But over the course of time, drug abuse can cause changes in the brain that erode a person's self-control and ability to manage sound decisions uh, while sending intense impulses to do the drug. So then drug addiction itself becomes a chronic relapsing disease. No different than diabetes, asthma, or heart disease. And this can be managed successfully, and treatment could be done, but this is exactly what happens. Now, there's no single factor that can predict whether or not a person will become addicted to a drug. Risk for addiction itself can be influenced by by a person's biological makeup, genetic, genetic makeup, sometimes social environmental condition, and things like those. So, the, so what, what happens biologically, the genes that people are born with actually, in combination with the environmental influences, account for half of their addiction vulnerability. Now, additionally, if you look at it, gender, ethnicity, and the presence of mental illness itself influence the risk of drug abuse and addiction to a great extent. Okay. That's the most important part. Right. What happens. And of course, you know, as, as you say, the genetic and environment factors interact with the critical developmental stages of one's life. That's why what happens in adolescent uh, and affects the addiction vulnerability. So that's for adolescent and ch- young people, that's a double threat at this time. You know, and um, the, these drugs tend to, uh, you know, affect the communication system and disrupt the way the nerve cells usually send and receive and process information. So uh, there have been multiple studies showing that um, there's a similarity between the chemical structure between the drugs and the neurotransmitters that we produce in the brain. So some drugs, for example, like marijuana and heroin, basically are able to fool the mind, a person's brain's receptors and activate some of the nerve cells to to send abnormal messages via a whole network of things that we don't understand it very well right now, but we know they do do that. And then there's a stimulation of of the reward system where they're flooding the circuits with dopamine, which is another neurotransmitter. 
uh-huh. which is present in different regions of the brain, and that regulates the movements, emotions, and motivation, and feeling of pleasure, and all those other activities that happen. So this is how it happens. And as a result, the brain adapts in response to these overwhelming surges in dopamine and adjusts by decreasing the number of dopamine receptors available. Thus, the diminishing in the function of the circuit reward system happens. Right. Now you become dependent on the drug from outside, right? Right. So, so it has changed me and my brain so much that now I'm totally dependent to even feel normal. I have to take the drug which I'm using. The science has really shed a lot of light on, and I'm just sort of a lay person, and you'll be able to straighten me out. Um, That's all right. Yeah. The difference is, though, between alcohol Mm -hmm. and, let's say, cocaine, Mm -hmm. and then behavioral addictions, um, which you talked about cutting and gambling and and those Mm -hmm. various things. But the science is showing that in, a lot, in all of these, some of the same things are occurring. Is that right? Kind of, yes. You're right. Maybe in a different system and different pathways, for example, right? The mm-hmm. people who are, who, are, uh, who are behavior addiction have to do something with obsessive-compulsive symptoms and, and serotonin more so. Versus these drug addictions have a lot to do with the dopamine and glutamate and things like those. So different neurotransmitters... But altering these neurotransmitters and modulating the receptors is what the drugs do. And that results in what we call a a system of conditioning and a behavior that becomes inept in in that person. It becomes an innate ability to kind of repeat the same thing as the brain repeats itself over and over again at the same circuitry. I mean, alcohol, I just wanted to, you know, with, with alcoholics, and we've had a lot of people that are recovering, mm-hmm. um, many, many alcoholics use other drugs and vice versa, and people that use drugs use alcohol. Right. Is, is alcohol, is the effect of alcohol on the brain any different than heroin and, or cocaine, for example? Uh, yes, it is. The alcohol, uh, alcohol's effect on the brain is very different than um, other drugs like cocaine would do. Uh, or heroin, and heroin would be different than cocaine too uh-huh. because they have different neurotransmitters being working on. Uh, uh, on and, and even the comorbidity is very different. Like by comorbidity, I mean two diseases simultaneously being there. For example, alcohol use and depression mood disorders are very comorbid extremely comorbid. Okay. That means in, in a study, the association between alcohol dependent and major depression was greater than the association between just abusing something and, and things like those. Hmm. And it was funny because uh, in the study, they also showed it was higher for females than men. Really? And higher for blacks than whites, so non-blacks. So it's very interesting how Genes, that's why I say genes play a role too. So in one study, they showed that women who, are, who have alcohol dependence have a very high incidence of, uh, um, of mood disorder. In fact, so high up to a rate of 80% to 90%. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so these are kind of interesting data 
that one needs to one needs to look at um, as to why. And I, I think it's a matter of understanding why why it happens the way it happens yes. in some some group of people versus the other. We've been talking to Dr. Malik from uh, Center Point Hospital a little bit about science. When we come back, I think we're going to continue the conversation and talk about when patients come uh, to you at CenterPoint and you begin the diagnosis uh, and then how you decide to use cognitive therapy and then how do you use you know, medically-assisted treatment or medicine for the mental illness. And we come back, we're going to continue with, with Dr. Malik. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter? You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We've been talking to Dr. Malik from Centerpoint Hospital, and I want our listeners, to, if they want to go to the website, it's centerpointhospital.com, and it's spelled C-E-N-T-E-R-P-O-I-N-T-E, centerpointhospital.com. And Dr. Malik, is there a toll-free number that folks could call if they uh, wanted any, any information or they had questions for... Uh, mm-hmm. Folks at, at Center Point. Yes, there is one, but unfortunately, I don't have it at hand. I we can will give find you a it. Lo- local number. Yes, I will. It's six three six four seven four four one seven three zero zero. There's a, a number over here, um, mm-hmm. and I would find you the toll-free number. We have a 
800 toll-free number, which mm-hmm. I can get it to you after the break then. Very good. We'll do that. And I'd just like folks to go there and see uh, the scope of what you do. When we, we took the break, um, we started to, we were talking some science about the brain disease and addiction. And when people come to you, doctor, and you're going to diagnose um, generally access one addiction and thought and mood disorders Correct. and how, and how to set up a treatment plan. And we know we've had a lot of folks on here that are in recovery and people that aren't, but generally addiction is an abstinence based approach. And then this is, this is the million dollar question when dealing with dual diagnosis because medicine is needed to control symptoms uh, and behaviors and, you know more about it than I do. How do you decide the right balance and what's good for a patient? And, and how long does that take to really know what they need? Uh, okay, yeah, that, that's very interesting because sometimes you could be very, it could be very confusing if you are treating a patient for a psychiatric illness while they are using or abusing drugs or even if they are right. in the acute phase of detox yeah. because symptoms could be complex. So very good history and a family history is very important over here. If you take a good family history and a history from the patient regarding what exactly, how one was doing, and even talking to the family and finding out how they were doing when they were not using is one thing. Looking at a pre-morbid personality or a condition prior to their substance use. Mm-hmm. Certainly the first thing we do is we, we treat substance use disorder as such to make sure the patient a person is drug-free and alcohol-free, and we give them enough time to go through the detox symptoms. And it's a relationship of what they were experiencing prior to using drugs. And most of the time when people are using drugs and if they have a prior condition, the symptoms are exaggerated at times in between or during the time of, of drug dependency and intoxication. So you will see exaggeration of symptoms during the period of the abuse, which then tends to linger on even after the fact that patients are not using the drugs and alcohol and their symptoms that continue. These symptoms have to have a specific time period and have different diagnoses, have different time periods. For example, for depression, let's take the most common illness, for major depressive disorder, usually when you see patients with depressed mood, where they're feeling sad or empty all day, every day, not like I'm feeling good today and back tomorrow. Right. Reduced interest in activities, uh, that they enjoy anything. They have sleep disturbances, they have loss of energy <clears throat> levels, their difficulty with concentration and cognition, cannot make good decisions. And occasionally when they're very sick, they may have suicidal feelings too. Mm-hmm. But when they, they see these symptoms persist over a course of time, post uh, the fact that they were addict, uh, they, they have had their addiction and have been clean, you would certainly diagnose them as having major depressive disorder. Uh, and if you have, and most of the treatments of our conditions, including mood disorders, thought disorders, anxiety disorders, are with medications that are not habit-forming or addictive, and they do not influence, if anything. Most of the studies have shown that the influence of treating these conditions have better outcome for patients with uh, addictions, uh, with 
remission, that means not relapsing again, right? Right. <clears throat> For example, um, even um, brain imaging studies have shown that there are some changes that have occurred in the brain after even addiction is done and over with, and you still have those changes. So the question is this. Do you wait long enough? And studies have been done a year down the road where the brain does not revert back to the normal self. So do you wait long enough for the patient to suffer and ultimately they'll end up using the drug of choice because they're not feeling normal? Or would I want to alter these with some of the medication that are controlled and not addictive that right. can make them feel comparable and reduce the craving or the desire for them to go back and use, right? That's the right. bottom, a last final question. So right. I think if you look at the, if you diagnose the underlying disorder and treat the underlying disorder, whether it exists after or before, I think the outcome is what you're looking at in patients. Right. And the outcome should be that they should not use drugs and alcohol and they should feel normal like all of, all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's where the where the key is. The key is not to rush into a diagnosis, but certainly look at diagnosing it properly and then treating it effectively. Right. And and you know specifically, which medications are you talking about that you find to be uh, number one non-addictive and then effective on the outcome end for these? What do you use and find to be effective? Well, you know, that is a uh, um, million-dollar question because it depends what the patient has. If somebody, let's take, again, I take the simpler of the disease and simplest of the disease, rather, major depressive disorder. If you have major depression, which used to be known as unipolar depression, the treatment is simple. The treatment is antidepressants, and none of these antidepressants are addictive. Now, there are multiple kinds of antidepressants. There are drugs known as SSRI, which are the... Prozac-like drugs, then the SNRI, a little more complex drug which work on serotonin and norepinephrine receptors both. SSRIs work only on serotonin. Then there are some receptor modulators, a little kind of different newer medications that are a little more complex. And they modulate different receptors, including some effect on dopamine too. The three neurotransmitters that that have been related to depression are serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So these are the drugs that that work on these three neurotransmitters. And the newer drugs, the modulators, that's what you call them? Yes, yes, we call it neuromodulators. Okay. That means that they they just don't work on the receptor side, but they change the receptor. And the new new drugs in the studies which we have which which are go ongoing are drugs that that make you you change your RNA of your uh, genetic uh, system that will make the cells uh, move and secrete neurotransmitters differently that will overall in the long haul help you with symptoms and the disease itself. Right. Basically, you know what we have done in psychiatry till now is treated the disease symptoms. I think we are coming to a point where we need to look at treating the underlying illness and changing the phenomena what's happening in the brain to a point that, you know, ultimately it will happen that I can give you a medication that will modulate and change your your system that you don't need to take medication. Right now, unfortunately, we are not there. Right now, if you're treated, you have to keep on taking the medication to keep you 
in a in a harmonious state. Now here's a, here's a, uh, I've always wanted to ask a doctor this question, so it's my big chance, and I think. <laughs> You know, as a scientist, and in the the last segment of the show, we're going to talk about some research and where this field has been and is heading, but as a scientist, do you believe in the spiritual experience that we've had people on here uh, that are in 12-step programs, and they talk about the spiritual experience? Do you believe that actually happens and that that has an effect on a person's brain and has there been studies on that to see if that actually happens? I'm assuming in the frontal cortex area. You know, you, I have not, I, maybe there are some and I'm not privy to it. You can barely you know, keep up with everything nowadays. You know? yeah. But yeah. I certainly think there are certain kind of cognitive behavior therapies that do help us change the way our neurotransmitters work. So, And that is why one of the best things is for patients with depression, the studies have shown that if you just treat with medication, a certain amount of people recover. If you treat with medication, if you treat just with therapy, only a very small amount of people recover. But if you treat with both of them, the, the recovery rate goes up drastically. Ah. There's something about cognitive therapy, mainly cognitive behavior therapy, that does lead to changes that happen. Mm. Right. So and it is, needs to be it needs to be on a continual basis, doesn't it? And that's really yes, yes. where our uh-huh. conversation started today was the silo effect of treatment, which was ineffective uh-huh. because all of these balls were dropped. Uh, you know, the medicine was not followed up on, and the cognitive, the CBT was not followed up on. But it's pretty exciting to know that in combination, that's very, very. That's kind of the most powerful. Effect, isn't it? Exactly. To do it all exactly. in combination. Absolutely right. When, when yeah. we come back, we've been talking about thought and mood disorders, and of course, there's a whole different level of persistent, you know, and severe mental health with bipolar and uh, several other things. And I know we'll talk a little bit about that, and we may ask you some more about some other medications that you use. And and I'm going to ask you also. Um, You've been around for, you've been working in this field for a long time, so the field that you're in when you started is certainly not what it was. And and, and uh, I'm sure you see some exciting things in the future, you know, mm -hmm. uh, coming. And we're going to tell our listeners, I want to again give them the website real quick. Uh, It's centerpointhospital.com. Dot com c e n t e r p o i n t e hospital dot com and we we come back maybe Dr Malik you'll find us at eight hundred number and we can give that to the folks and we're going to talk about some research and in the future of uh, dual diagnosis we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you or someone you love struggle with Alzheimer's disease or some other disorder? Many times, there is not an adequate support forum where you can learn from and discuss topics from top guest experts. Tune in to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Although thought of as a disease that affects only older individuals, increasingly, symptoms are being found in people who are in their 40s and 50s. Get the answers. Neuromatters airs live Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is John McAndrew. We've been talking with Dr. Malik of Centerpoint Hospital, and uh, I've got the 800 number for Centerpoint. If you want to write this down, listeners, it's 800-345-5407. 800-345-5407. We've been talking about psychiatry and dual diagnosis, and, and the doctor has told us, that the evidence-based practices for dual diagnosis are uh, really proving to be uh, effective and true in the sense of it's the best way to treat both of these illnesses at the same time. We we ended with talking about thought and mood disorders and some of the non-addictive medications that are effective and, of course, in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, uh, proves to be the best way to go about it. But, doctor, then we know that we have a, there's two populations that are really growing enormously. Obviously, it's the senior citizens with addiction problems. And then the younger people that are coming off the street with, there's new drugs out there, and many of them cause, uh, you know, psychotic breaks. So what is your challenge with treating the opioid crowd you know, and detoxing them and then trying to medicate them properly to get the best outcomes for their recovery. Well, you know, uh, it does take time to first, uh, we do do detox uh, on patients with opioid. For example, let's take opioid. Then there's some new, very exciting new uh, treatments available in opioid, opioid addiction, drugs that will 
and that will keep you sober and it's very effective actually. We are currently doing a study of implant where you implant something, um, a medication in the patients under the skin and the implant stays with you for six months and the patient stays sober. Now, it's longer term treatment but simultaneously while the patient is sober, you tend to treat them for their other conditions as well. Uh, so the challenge is over here is to first keep the patient sober while, and it takes time, and uh, then follow up and treat them for the medical, for the psychiatric illness. And psychiatric illnesses themselves take a while before, take at least good two to three weeks before you can stabilize somebody. So the time period is the most important, being consistent, a patient being motivated, and sometimes educating the patient and the family plays an important role in doing what we do. Right. Yeah. And evidence-based practices show that the family being involved uh, is absolutely essential and much better outcomes. And, and you told us earlier in this program, the families are involved in giving you a history, um, pre-morbid conditions, you know, how they, how they behave before they were using drugs and alcohol. And then, of course, after they sober up and treat their men- mental illness, the family is very, very important. How do you engage the family in the continuum of care at CenterPoint? You know, it's very interesting because we feel that families are very willing to and, and get engaged because it's their loved ones. And yeah. I feel I have very strong uh, kind of data and belief that if you don't get the family involved in, in a proper diagnosis, remember I mentioned earlier that you have to get history from the patients yeah. or loved ones. But they are the ones who saw the person even prior to, and they can recall how the patient or person was prior to the using drugs as well. So you have to get the family involved, number one, at all cost. In fact, personally, I've been refused to treat patients if they refuse the fact that they don't want the family involved in their treatment because yeah. I think you're only treating half the condition. So going back to... Uh, uh, we need to get the family involved. We make sure compliance is a factor, especially with people with dual diagnosis, because the the chances that they may go back and do drugs is very high. Right. A lot of times they're doing drugs to feel good, to feel better, uh, and and you know sometimes you know curiosity, like adolescent, because others are doing it, and they want to do it for social reasons and things like those. So these are difficult choices one has to make. So we do get the the family involved in the process. And again, like I said earlier, you recognize the symptoms. Because the patient may not be able to tell you or recognize the symptoms as much. The family or the loved ones could do it. So that's why it's essential to recognize the symptoms and come to a correct diagnosis and proper treatment. And, of course, accountability is very important and the family being involved um, directly with your staff at the hospital and with the patient really helps to eliminate some, uh, I'm not going to be too tough on drug addicts, but they tend to not tell the truth sometimes, especially if they're struggling, and having the family be a part of everything, uh, you know, the, the messaging of what you're all trying to do to do that together must really be effective, isn't it? Exactly. Because it's not like, I don't want to call them uh, that they're dishonest, but I think it's the drugs. It's yeah. a state of mind that drugs are causing it to be. 
And remember when somebody is detox of drugs, that doesn't mean you're totally cleansed of the drug. You still have drugs and effects in, the, in your cellular system, yeah. inside the cells of the brain. So it does take time. Yeah, and the brain is struggling. I, I don't want to say that you've been around forever, but you've been around for a long enough time to know, uh-huh. uh, you know, that when, when you started, co-occurring disorders meant you drank alcohol and snorted cocaine. Um, the mental illness part has, has really come into the picture in the last several years, but you're very involved with research, and, and what do you see... Uh, for the future of dual diagnosis, I think I think it's just uh, an incredibly exciting field to be in because people are getting better. Uh, we're better at diagnosing and treating. So, what do you see in the future? Uh, in the, the near future, this is and there are two things happening in the future. In the near future, we are getting more and more medications that we understand the issue of drug addiction and they block the effects of drug how the drug may cause us to change the brain, or in a sense, they would do the same thing of modulating the brain cells in a way that the drug effect of the drugs would be lost and would not be the same. So patients, the brain changes slowly and gradually to a point where drugs are not an influence to the brain and these medications that you're taking may, may change your brain to where you feel normal and feeling better. The second thing that is, that is coming down the pipeline is really looking at evaluating who is vulnerable, uh, like gene variants, mm-hmm. genetic variation that may reduce the risk of a disease. So manipulating the genetic variation so your chances of getting addicted would be less. That would be the the game changer in a way, right? Wow. So, we are so not what treating... kind of research is going on right now with, um, I understand the federal government is, is going to back some research on the brain, or can you give me those details? No, actually, uh, uh, um, the recent administration has given uh, a lot of money for a decade of the brain to National Institute of Mental Health. Oh, okay. And National Institute of Mental Health is focused on two things. Uh, Tom Insel, who's the who's doctor as heading the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, I was at a meeting uh, not, too re- not too long ago, recently, a month ago, with them. And he said that the goal is to find biological markers for all these illnesses and also find the neurocircuitry, like where and how this all happens. If you can find that, then the pharma industry and everybody else can bring, can really do is create products that will alter and affect the system in place. Uh-huh. Right? It's all now pretty exciting, yes, isn't it? Yes. Recently, there are two studies done, uh, for example, when we talk about opioid addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where they looked at pain and addiction based on patient's genetic makeup. Uh, one study was associated with a rare variant of genes for the mu opioid receptor with a decreased risk for addiction for heroin or cocaine in these patients. The other variant is a two gene, which is, I won't go into names, but there's an enzyme known as COMT, 
yeah. with reduced severity of, of these things. And that would lead to more addiction and things like those towards opioid. So these are very we're, interesting studies. Huh? We're out of time, and, and sure. I, I want to thank you very much for coming on. We've been speaking with Dr. Malik, the Chief Executive Officer at Centerpoint Hospital. Please check out their website. Uh, their approach to integrated dual diagnosis is very effective. And again, we want to thank you, Doctor, for being on the show. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it, too. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.